After a six-week hiatus for the Christmas season, today we return to our journey through the Book of Romans. I intend to go through with a quicker overview than I had initially attended, and we will see if we can take it chapter by chapter. This, after spending five or six messages in the first chapter today, we'll look at the second, and at least the task will be in one message. Remember, John Knox calls this unquestionably the greatest theological work ever written. Today we'll look at the second chapter, and I'll read selectively verses 1 and verses 5 to 12, and verses 25 to 26, and then verses 28 to 29. Give attention to this, the reading and the hearing of God's word. You who pass judgment on someone else have no excuse. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, and to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory Honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who sin apart from the law will also perish under the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In front of the U.S. Supreme Court is a statue of Lady Justice. I remember my father showing it to me and talking to me about it among the earliest remembers memories that I can remember anything at all. He would say, and throughout my childhood as we were there, that she was blindfolded as a sign that justice is always impartial, even-handed, fair. Sometimes, he would explain, Lady Justice is pictured holding scales in one hand, weighing evidence in the balance. Sometimes she holds the book of the law, and sometimes she even has no hands at all as a sign that justice can take no bribes, can receive nothing, 
and cannot be bought. This morning we return to our journey through Romans. In chapter 1, Paul introduces himself as one bound and called and set apart and sent for the gospel of God, the good news which concerns his son, whose birth and meaning and message we have been celebrating during this Christmas season. Then after that personal introduction, Paul moves immediately to the central theme of judgment, God's judgment. In verses 18 through 32 of that first chapter, God reveals his judgment against a fallen world. The world is guilty of rejecting God's revelation, of standing in rebellion against him, and of then descending into idolatry and horrifying vice. Humanity has abandoned God, and in return, God abandons humanity to the consequences of her sins. The chapter describes the universal human condition as one of a great exchange, willfully, consciously, deliberately. We have exchanged the truth of God for lies, and we stand before the living God without excuse. That's a summary of chapter 1. Now, chapter 2 continues the theme, but in a new key. It addresses perhaps a different audience. Paul surely knows that his letter is going to be read before the church at Rome for Gentile Christians who would have engaged in many of the activities named in chapter 1, but there would also be gathered before him Jewish Christians, good people, moral people, religious people. We can, by extension, say that chapter 2 addresses religious people throughout history. It uh, People who aren't overtly murderers or thieves or perhaps even idolaters before uh, things made with human hands. Basically good moral folk who have not, as it were, abandoned all sense of right and wrong and morality. Paul says to them, you who pass judgment on others, you have no excuse. For whatever point you judge others, you are condemning yourself because you do the same things. Now, what's Paul addressing here? Of course, on one level and straightforwardly, he is surely addressing the sin of hypocrisy. We believe one thing and do another. We attest one thing and live differently. Uh, not to make light of that. I remembered an essay that I wrote, uh, read uh, some time ago in the Weekly Standard, which uh, gave a defense of hypocrisy. Thinking of the political context in particular, it wrote, if a public standard of moral conduct is to have any force at all, inevitably some people who believe in that standard will sometimes fail to meet it. If a society doesn't want to see many of its members fall short of its moral standards, it can only have minimal or non-existent standards. And the uh, editorial went on to describe that the fate of, arguably, of much of our contemporary culture. We don't want to commit the sin of hypocrisy, so we have no standards at all. That's not to excuse hypocrisy. We are called to live by standards we profess. We are to walk our talk. Nonetheless, I think Paul is saying something much deeper here than simply decrying hypocrisy. 
What he is undercovering is that finally what matters most is a life which is lived from inside out, not outside in. What we are finally going to be judged for are matters of motive. It's a matter of inwardness. It's saying, you religious people, you think you have lived up to a standard by not overtly murdering or thieving or perhaps even lying or certainly committing idolatry, but you have idols in your heart. There are things you really live for. There are things that really give meaning to your life, which are self-centered and self-oriented and selfish, and therefore you too stand condemned. Uh, There's a great unity that stands throughout Scripture. In reading this uh, chapter, I was reminded of the great teaching of Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son, really the parable of two brothers. One brother who is licentious and materialistic and disobedient, but the other son, the elder son, stays at home. He's obedient and compliant and obeys everything the father says, but he is lost in his own backyard. The father says, I have been with you always. The first chapter of Romans is arguably written to the younger son, the prodigal son. The second chapter is written to the elder son, the religious, the moralist, who thrives on the impulse of building oneself up by looking down on others. Brothers Saeed and Sharif Karochi were trying to avenge the honor of the Prophet Muhammad. The world has been appalled by the attack on the offices of Charlie Hebdo this week. They were passing a religious judgment on an infidel world by any reckoning. Theirs is a sick religion, but it is a form of religion nonetheless. It grows out of this impulse to say, because we have the inside track, because we know the truth and you don't, we have a special, superior status to you. The Bible says we're all sinners. We're all lost. And nobody has the right to look down on anyone else. Paul is also teaching something else so terribly important about human nature, namely that all human Nature. All human beings have a moral compass, have the moral law of God stamped into their hearts. Notice the wording of verse 14. When Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, those not having the law are a law to themselves. The instinctively means literally by nature. In other words, Paul is telling us there's something fundamental here about human nature. That's what it means to be human, to have the law of God stamped and pressed on our hearts. You are without excuse because you too do these things, Paul said in verse 1. To understand what these things are, we have to go back to chapter 1. And remember, here are some of the things listed there at the very end of the chapter. Evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slandering, being insolent and arrogant, boastful, senseless, faithless, heartless, 
ruthless. If you look carefully, or if you listen carefully to that list, you'll see that most of what is named are not behaviors, but attitudes. What uh, Paul is calling out here is really the character. The law is describing the kind of person we are called to become. Francis Schaeffer had a big influence in my youth, and I remembered he had a uh, excursus on the second chapter, describing it as a uh, invisible tape recorder. I went back. I wanted to read a couple pages of his to you on this particular chapter. He writes, "Do you know what Romans two is about? Romans two is about an invisible tape recorder." Romans 2 is saying that even though you don't know it, there's an invisible tape recorder God put around everybody's neck. Now, you can't feel it. You can't see it, so don't even try, but it's there. Romans 2 says it is. On Judgment Day, all of a sudden, you're going to appear before God, and a lot of people are going to say, I didn't even know you existed. You can't hold me responsible for your law. Other people are going to say, oh, I've heard of the Bible, but I've never read it. You can't hold me responsible for that law. I didn't realize the God of the Bible is the real God. Okay, so here you are, but you can't hold me responsible. You can't judge me for something I didn't believe in, that I didn't know about. Then what's God going to do, Schaefer writes? He's going to reach around your back. He's going to unclasp and he's going to get off your invisible tape recorder. It'll become visible and you'll say, I didn't see that there. And he'll say, no, you couldn't have felt it. It was invisible. Then he'll say, well, I want you to know I'm the fairest judge you could possibly imagine. I'm not going to judge you according to the Bible because you didn't know the Bible. I'm not going to judge you according to Christ because you never heard of Christ. I'm going to judge you by your own words. Because this tape recorder only recorded throughout your life. Whatever you said to someone else, when you began the sentence, you ought, or you should. This tape recorder has only recorded your standards for the people around you. Therefore, I'm not going to judge you by anything other than the standards by which you judged people your entire life. Nobody in the history of the world will be able to stand in the judgment day because you're not going to even be able to stand before your own words, before your own standards. Therefore, we are all absolutely lost. Where's the hope? Is there any hope at all? Of course, the answer is yes. The failure of religion because of the terrible beauty of the law means now at the very end there's a need for a new heart. Suddenly at the very end of the chapter Paul begins to speak of the new heart with a powerful image, a striking image. He speaks of circumcision. Listen to the words. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, A person is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. 
Here's, I think, what Paul is saying. You religious people, do you know all of your life you've been trying to live outwardly by the law of God and circumcision was a sign of your being a Jew, a Jew who is trying to obey the law of God. But what you really need is an inner, an inward circumcision, a circumcision of the heart. What you really need is a new heart. When you read the law properly, when you read the Sermon on the Mount properly, what you see is being described as a character, a self, an attitude, a disposition of life. What you also see is a description, not of an impossible standard, but of a person. The law in the Sermon on the Mount is describing Jesus Christ. And according to Scripture, when you believe in Jesus Christ and you give your life to him, then all of your sins and what they deserved are transferred onto him. He's the new circumcision. He has been cut off from God for you. And all the beauty of his law-keeping, all the beauty of his life is transferred to you. And in Christ, we are told, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once you understand that, it cuts into your heart. You're given a new heart. A circumcised heart treats people differently. Last week at about this time, I was standing to lay to rest my friend and the friend of um, many of yours, Toby Clark. I believe she had a circumcised heart. Her memorial service was uh, two hours long. For two decades, she had served as a teacher of music in the public school system of Modesto and Turlock and surrounding communities. And Student after student stood up to testify that Mrs. Clark had made all the difference in their lives, that of all their teachers, they knew that Mrs. Clark cared for them. They finished high school. They went to college. Their life was changed. There was a 75-voice choir singing to her. I believe Toby's soul was shaped as it was from her earlier, earliest days because she was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And because of that, it helped her live from the inside out with a circumcised heart. Here are some of the things that were said about her by those who knew her best. I jotted them down. She had an inexhaustibly positive attitude and an unending care for people. She was truly, sincerely caring, as evidenced by anyone who ever interacted with her. She never had a negative word to say about anyone. She had a passion for working with people in her field and the students that she worked with. She treated them as her family. They were her family. That was said by one of her two sons. She was tender-hearted and humble beyond compare. She was steadfast in her relationship with Christ and love for others. An almost supernatural ability was her to genuinely warm your heart and make you feel welcome and cared about. She was sensitive to others and fragile herself though it didn't show. I don't read this so much as it, 
partly a tribute to Toby, but more than that, that a tribute to the Christ who discipled her, whose, whose heart her eyes were fastened on from a young age. This is the way a life can be forged and formed and filled. Because she was so feeling-oriented, she was courageous because she overcame and she stepped beyond her fear of being hurt to risk. She would risk on the personal and emotional level because it was important to her. In that service, I shared this story about Toby. I've shared this with you once before. Let me share it again. Toby's warmth had a way of touching and unlocking even the most unlikely of souls. Some time ago, Toby and her husband Ed and Stephanie and I found ourselves in New York City at the same time they were there with a group that was performing at Carnegie Hall. So we decided the, the Clarks and the Shouses to venture out to uh, see the famous theatrical restaurant Sardi's together. Sardi's is perhaps best known for the autographed caricatures which are wall-to-wall from the wainscoting all the way up the ceiling throughout the establishment, room beyond room, beyond room, and all of the luminaries of the Broadway stage of the last hundred years and more grace those walls. The maitre d' that greeted us at the door was in full tucks and tails. If you've seen Carson the head of house on Downton Abbey. You've seen this particular maitre d'. He was the defender of rectitude and tradition and posh and circumstance of Sardis. He looked us over from head to foot, and he correctly, I could tell from his cold, stiff, icy manner, knew us to be the raggedy tourists that we were. He knew we didn't belong there. We knew we didn't belong there, but... We really just wanted to see it, and I didn't want to fork out five or six hundred dollars for a dinner for four. So I asked, would it be all right if we came in just for some coffee and maybe some dessert? And his demeanor looked on us disapprovingly, but his elegance did not allow his words to show it. So icily and stuffily, he intoned, but of course. And with equal touches of elegance and disdain, he directed us to... Uh, what was unquestionably the worst table in the entire establishment. Sometime later, out of sheer professionalism, I'm sure, he returned to our table to ask if we were all right and if he could be of any further assistance. Toby, fresh-faced and pure as the morning dew, said, well, there is one more thing you could do for us. Oh, he said, almost imperceptibly but still unmistakably raising an eyebrow, what, that, what might that be? Toby took her menu in one hand and a pen in the other and raised them up towards the maitre d' with no less enthusiasm and respect than if she had been offering them to Clark Gable or Harrison Ford and said, would you please autograph my menu? The maitre d's face froze for a moment in stunned surprise. He might have worked at Sardi's for 40 years and seen autographed pictures come and go thousands of times, but I could tell that never before had he been asked for his autograph. In that moment, all of his contained reserve 
melted. And taking the pen and met menu, he broke into a warm smile and said, I would be delighted. And from that moment on, Toby and all of those who were in her retinue were royalty. If Toby had been the Queen of England and we with her, we could not have been treated with more honor and more respect. A maitre d' copped as our desserts and gave us a personal one-hour private guided tour of every nook and cranny of Sardis. Toby could melt hearts that had never been melted before. Her person, like her music, was a blowtorch of warmth. I believe it was so because she had learned to live from the inside out. She had a circumcised heart. In that message, I also, uh, I also recalled a quote from Ian Forster's. Um, I didn't put this in my notes. But Ian, one of Ian Forster's novels where his, uh, actually the vicar, says about the central character, Mrs. Honeychurch, as uh, she's playing a young woman, she's a coming-of-age novel, and she's playing the, the piano, Beethoven, with exquisite beauty and passion. She's just a young woman. And Mr. Beeb, the vicar, says, you know, if Mrs. Miss Honeychurch ever lives the way she plays, it will be exquisitely, ex- exquisitely exciting, both for her and for us. I said at that time that Toby did live the way she played, or perhaps more correctly, she played the way she lived. That's what a circumcised heart does. God sent his son to die so that the requirements of the law would be fulfilled. Just because we have been saved by grace and the transfer of his righteousness onto us, we should never, ever think or never, ever say that living under the law and according to the law and righteousness is unimportant. We're absolutely, fastidiously, diligently called to seek to try and obey God's good, great law. But here's the paradox of the gospel. Here's the paradox of the Christian life. We are earnestly to pursue it but never to be crushed by our failure, because life is by grace. And similarly, we are never to look down on others, but to forgive them. Here is the center of the Christian life, to put at the center of all our hopes and dreams and aspirations, the judge who has been judged for us. Father, thank you for giving us the bad news about Judgment Day. The bad bad news that no one can stand in the judgment and the good news that your Son, Jesus Christ, was circumcised for us on the cross. He was cut off for us. So now in him, we can have new hearts, circumcised hearts, hearts which live from the inside out. And we thank you eternally for all that and more. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.